All right. Honestly, how many of us have ever felt like we did not have the right words to pray? The spiritual words, the impressive words that will really get God's attention, really get it done. Um, This morning, I want to take a look at a woman who she didn't have any words to pray, at least not, not out loud. Um, it's a story out of the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, and I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, maybe grab one of the black pew Bibles, and this is on page 225, 1 Samuel chapter 1. While you're turning there, my name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we, uh, to launch the new ministry year, last Sunday, we began a five-week sermon series that we are calling Plug and Pray. So over five weeks, we're going to look uh, last Sunday at a gospel passage, uh, this Sunday at an Old Testament historical narrative, and we're going to look at Pauline epistle, general epistle, and wisdom literature. So we're trying to take all these different genres across the biblical canon to display this abiding priority of prayer for God's people. Uh, Because prayer, we said, is a declaration of dependence. Prayer is a bold, unabashed, unashamed declaration of dependence upon the Lord. So week one, we talked about praying audaciously. We called it knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. This week, we are going to be talking about praying desperately, and we are calling it sweet child o' mine. (laughs) At least there's a few. Thank you, everyone. All right, so if you've never read it, uh, 1 Samuel, uh, just a quick uh, overview. It's divided into three parts. You got the story of Samuel, and then you got the story of a guy named Saul, and then you got the story of David. Um, For this morning, we're going to read just the first 20 verses that introduce us to the birth of this man named Samuel, and we are going to see the cradle of not the Savior, okay, but the cradle of a Savior. Uh, baby. He grows up into something of a savior for old Israel. And it all begins with one mother's desperate prayer. So first Samuel chapter one, beginning at verse one. And this is the most important part of the entire sermon, because this now is the very word of our Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of an Aphrodite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? By the way, that has to be like the most guy thing to say ever. (laughs) 
You got me, babe. What more could you want? Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pause. Let's take a deep breath and let's pray. Lord, however, this text needs to apply to each individual man, woman, boy, girl in this room. We pray that you would press it into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Make your word live to us this morning all over again. We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, uh, three point headers. If you want to take some notes, point number one, we did not get these into the bulletin because Joanne has traveled out on vacation and therefore everything in church shuts down entirely for two weeks. (laughs) Please come back, Joanne. Uh, The first point is the place God begins. The place God begins. You ever find yourself droning on and on to your kids or maybe your grandkids about the good old days? How so much better back when dot, dot, dot. And then if we're really, really honest with ourselves and we take a step back, we realize, yeah, probably the good old days weren't nearly as good as we remember them. Um, And then we come to the Old Testament, which relays with great honesty the bad old days. Okay, so here's the bad old days background to what we're reading here in 1 Samuel. God had told his people, this was back in Exodus 23, right after the deliverance from Egypt via Moses, God had said to his people, hey, I've delivered you. Now, if you will keep my word, 
my people. And you don't bow down to false gods, then the Lord will bless the the fruit of their womb, and uh, there will not be a male or a female among them who would be barren among all the people or all the flocks. That was Exodus 23. Then you fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is near the end of Moses' life now, and that same promise, covenant, gets reiterated. It goes like this, quote, Moses said, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The Lord will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Now that's the background to the book of 1 Samuel where the very first thing that we read when we open up to it is a a woman who is, to use that old-fashioned word, barren. She can't have kids. She's faithful. She's devout. But she lives in this broken world and is affected by the consequences of living in this broken world. Um, 1 Samuel, it's a book that straddles two historical time periods, the period of the judges and then the period of the monarchy. If you're brand new to Old Testament, that doesn't mean much at all to you. Um, Just understand time of the judges can pretty much be summarized in just a, a sentence or so. There's this constant refrain in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his... Okay. That pretty much sums up this period in Israelite history. Lawlessness, sin, selfishness. Everyone did what was right in his own eye. Church, we ought to be very concerned if ever we look around ourselves and we start to see a family or a church or a culture that seems to just kind of write the rules based on what's good in our own eyes. Well, that's what they were doing. Israel was a mess. And that's the place God begins. First point header. That's the place God begins. Okay, so that's the, that's the landscape of what's going on here. And now we zoom in on this very, very human story of one man with two wives. By the way, as a footnote, <laughs> every now and then, I do have someone say to me, and, you know, kind of trying to challenge the authority of the Bible, and, and I appreciate that, and I, I'm totally willing to dialogue on that, and sometimes it'll come out this way. Well, Trev, you know, in the Bible... God approved of multiple wives. And I always think to myself, have you read the Bible? Because not only does God never approve of polygamy in the Old Testament, but every single time, without exception, that it's pictured in the Old Testament, it's a disaster. Today's, today's text is no exception. Verse 2 begins... There was a man who had two wives. You can be sure that the immediate story that follows is not going to have a happy beginning. But it is the place that God begins. So we're introduced to Elkanah's wife, Hannah, who in a sense had Elkanah, but she didn't really have him because there was a second wife named Panina, and she could have children, but Hannah couldn't have children. Now, my purpose this morning is not to focus upon Hannah's infertility. I want us all to focus on Hannah's God. Um, I want this to be something of a case study for all times 
of desperation and helplessness and what we can't fix ourselves. But we always want to come to the text and understand the context. And I think that you'll agree with me that for anyone who wants to bear children and is not able to bear children, there can be a tremendous amount of heartache there. And so think about this. How much more then when the cultural ideal was to have lots and lots and lots of children. Because in an agrarian culture, children were the means to economic production, more people to work the farm, you know, work the shop. Children were the means to security and care in old age. Children were the means to better defense against more populous uh, city-states and nations. In fact, in a very real way, in this time period and in this place, the best thing that you could do for your nation, your society, or your culture was to have a whole bunch of kids. So it, it gives a little bit of insight into where Hannah would have been, right? Today, we said before that we live in a culture where the value of a man is measured by the size of his wallet, and the value of a woman is far too often measured by the size of her dress. Well, Hannah lived in a culture where the value of a wife was routinely measured by the size of her nursery. And now there's this other wife, Panina, who has no problem regularly reminding Hannah that her nursery was vacant. Verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so this scene in verse 3, kind of read it quickly, um, this annual pilgrimage from their hometown to worship in the town of Shiloh, it's essentially a family camping trip, right? An all-family pilgrimage to this other town and they did this worship and they would do sacrifice and then you take the meat from that and you eat. It's essentially a camping trip. And so in verse four, uh, I know we have a lot of camping families in this church and you guys know what it's like around the picnic table when you're camping with kids, right? When, when, at mealtime with children, it's not so much that you sit down like family, it's more like you descend like wolves, and so you can picture all of Penina's kids, right? They're all coming around this picnic table, and the one is saying, uh, Mom, why, why does Hannah get a double portion of food? And Penina's answering her, some, apparently something like this, oh, oh, I don't know, sweetie. She doesn't even have children of her own. Well, Mom, why doesn't, does, does Hannah want any kids? Oh, well, you'll, we should ask her, Hannah, why don't you have any children? Oh, and did I tell you, I'm expecting again. And on and on it goes, it says, verse 7, year after year, to the point that, quote, Hannah wept and would not eat. She's miserable. She's hurt. She's depressed. And church, that's the place so often that God begins. Verse two, or excuse me, point two, the prayer God hears. You have the place God begins, and now you have the prayer God hears. 
And I want you to picture maybe a businesswoman boarding a plane, uh, Boston to DC commuter flight. She flies multiple times a month, maybe twice every week. She's boarding this plane. She flies it so often, the pilot and the co-pilot, they even recognize her. She's on a first-name basis with a couple of the flight attendants. She sits down in her seat, like she does every time, pulls out some paperwork, starts working it through. And then seated next to her is a mom who's absolutely terrified. First time on a plane, she's got a thousand questions from the moment of takeoff almost vomiting for the anxiety. The first woman, picture a calm. Second woman, picture a terror. Now tell me this, which one lands first? And of course, the reason, the reason there's no difference is because the success of their journey has essentially nothing to do with their own capabilities and everything to do with the plane and the pilot who's flying it. Some of us have been in church world for 60 years. Maybe we've been walking with the Lord for all of those 60 years. And we've learned, been able to realize over all these decades, God's never let me down before. Thus far has the Lord helped us. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise my monument, my, my reminder that God has always shown up just like he said he would. So I, I don't think he's going to let me down tomorrow. And then, of course, there's others of us. We're scared and we're jittery. That's okay. But I want to invite you to lay all that. Wherever you are on that continuum, just lay it down at the feet of God. Because you know there is that third person, right? Who's standing on the ramp. Hey, how was the flight? Oh, I never actually got on. <laughs> Hannah doesn't make that mistake. Verse 9 says, Hannah rose. Or some of your Bibles, uh, NIV probably, Hannah stood up. Um, quick phrase, but it's a Hebrew idiom. Um, if you were new to the English language and I said she put her foot down... I would probably need to explain to you if you were needed to the English language. That, that doesn't, that's not just simply a physical act. It means she drew a line in the sand. But then I'd have to explain to you that there's no sand. So what I really mean there is you know, she, she had some resolve, um, acted firmly, made an unyielding decision. Similarly, when it says there that Hannah rose or Hannah stood up, the Hebrew construction of that, it's idiomatic, which uh, comes out as she resolved and took action. And I love that because of what she does next. She resolved and she took action. She moved out of passivity and into activity. She quit letting life happen to her and she grabbed control. How? Well, that's what makes the scene so sweet. Hannah grabbed control by giving control to the one who's already in control. Right? In heartache and desperation. It's not passive to go to prayer. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is an active, it's a proactive move that in desperation, she would grab control by giving control to the one who's already in control. 
She runs to the doors of this little tabernacle. It was set up in Shiloh. It says she wept, she hurt, she prayed. But in her spirit, she didn't speak out loud. You ever had a moment in your prayer when you you couldn't say it out loud, even if you wanted to? I remember when I was pastoring in South Carolina, and my little Sadie, who is now, praise God, a very, very healthy fifth grader, Um, She was born, and she had a bunch of holes in her heart. Um, She had some between the ventricles, and those weren't real big deal. But there was also a couple between the upper chambers, the atria, and the doctors thought that could potentially be a pretty big deal. Um, So uh, I remember on Sunday leading the corporate prayer, and suddenly I just couldn't go on. You guys know me, and I'm not a particularly emotional guy. Um, my daughter sometimes asks me, Dad, why don't you ever cry? <laughs> I say, I do cry, but only if someone dies. So it caught me as a bit of a surprise, <laughs> right? But I'm standing in front of my church family there, and I, I couldn't speak anymore. I'm praying, thanks for this little girl. Lord, heal her little heart. And I couldn't And the kindness of the church family is they just waited with heads bowed for what seemed like a very, very long time until I could continue. Now you can imagine how it would have felt if after that service, one of the church leaders came up to me and said, you know, Trav, it seemed like you were really struggling in that prayer there. You need to stop getting drunk before service. this priest, I mean, the guys in this passage, they're not rock stars here. This priest, that's that's what he says to her. So he's he's the second to the last judge in the line. And he comes up and he says to Hannah, verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And I think to myself, my goodness, how bad must it have been in Israel, right? How far had the culture degenerated in the period of the judges when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, that that desperate prayer and honest-to-God devotion at the tabernacle was apparently largely unfamiliar to the priest, where a woman praying desperately and breaking down would immediately be confused with drunkenness. Of course, that's not what it is. Hannah's prayer actually... I think we could say that it anticipated Hebrews chapter 4. Um, you, you need not turn to there, but you remember in the New Testament it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the, do you know? Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a great memory passage if you're looking for one for your children or for yourself. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. And I think that's what we're seeing all the way back here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah's desperate prayer grabbed control by giving control to the one who's in control. That's the prayer that God hears, not the spiritual sounding one. Not the prayers with impressive vocabulary. God hears the cry of our soul, middle of verse 15, poured out 
before him. Hebrew word uh, is nefesh um, for soul. Same word is in Psalm 142. I pour my complaint before the Lord when my soul faints within me. I tell my trouble before him. Can I invite you to leave here today? Can I invite you to leave here today with the freedom to pray desperately whatever is in here? I don't know if it's sanctified enough. I don't know if my hopes and my dreams and my fears are holy enough. Can I just invite you Pray whatever's in here. C.S. Lewis, he said very helpfully, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Whatever it is, if it's the subject of our thoughts, let it be the subject of our prayers. Some of us, we hesitate to even pray because we know how distracted we get. Because we, we've done this before. We know 20 or 30 seconds in, my mind's on the golf course. My mind's in the classroom. My mind's re- replaying that fight with my child. Hey, wherever your distractions go, can I just give you permission? Let, let your prayers follow that. Um, uh, my sister-in-law, Carlin, I understand, taught a bunch of you ladies at the women's retreat last fall that it was so freeing to her when she realized she could have her quiet time with her to-do list sitting right beside her. And when she thought of something she needed to do, which moms often do, she would just write it down and then go back to her prayer. Pray big, pray small, pray audaciously, and pray desperately. So you had the place God begins We have the prayer that God hears. Last one and we're out. The purpose God achieves. The purpose God achieves. So for Hannah, her prayers were really about one thing here. This overwhelming desire to love her own child. So she prays, God, if you give him to me, I won't pretend that he belongs to me. And I'll give him right back to you. Every hair on his head as it were. Desperate prayers grab control by giving control to the one who's already in control. Now, I don't think we can draw a straight line from Hannah's experience to our experience. But in this case, I mean, you read the text, God was pleased to say yes. She became pregnant, she had a boy, and she names him Samuel. Uh, which kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for heard by God. God has heard me. And then we pull back from that very human story just a little bit, and we remember what we know from the whole landscape of Scripture, that, that God really likes to take our earthly prayers and work out eternal purposes. Just, just, just kind of an axiom for Christian prayer. God likes to take our earthly prayers and work out his eternal purposes. A childless woman who no one could help, some didn't even care to help, shame, humiliation, place of emptiness, and that was where God begins. If you're new to the Bible, you you might not be aware of this, but there is a cross scripture. There's this 
for lack of a better phrase, there's a, a fellowship of barrenness, to, to use that old-fashioned word again, that biblical word, this, this tendency that God has over and over again to work marvelously through women who at first could not have a baby. We think of Genesis 11 with Sarah, who eventually gave birth to Isaac. Genesis 25 with Rebekah, who eventually gave birth to Jacob and Esau. We think of Judges 13. We don't even know her name. We know she was married to a guy named Manoah. And after a period of unable to conceive, then she did, and she gave birth to a man named Samson. We think of Luke chapter 1, where we meet this woman named Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah. And they were, I mean, they were both collecting Social Security at this point. And then advanced years, and Elizabeth gives birth to, do you know? John the Baptist, yeah. So there's this fellowship of childless women in Scripture, which just, it just highlights this tendency that God has. How he frequently does his greatest work in the face of hopelessness. Utterly desperate, unable to fix your problem. With your marriage, with your job, with your kids, with your finances, with your health, with the people you love most. Desperate, unable to fix it. And over and over again, church, that's the place God begins. I know some of the stories that got carried into the room this morning. A bunch of those stories that I don't know. But I'm sure of this. We pray for earthly things. God works out eternal things. For instance, and this is, this is where I'm going to finish. All Hannah did here was pour out her heart and pray for a son. Okay? Just pull back and realize that's all she did here. She gave God the things she most wanted. She cried out to God, give me a son. But God's purpose through that prayer is way, way bigger than just that prayer, right? Because Samuel, uh, I think I've heard that name before. I feel like he's kind of a significant, he's kind of a significant guy. He's, he's the last in the line of the judges. He's the first in the line of these prophets who's going to anoint the, um, the kings of Israel. Samuel identifies the beginning of the Davidic line through which, ultimately, Jesus the Christ comes. And so just think about what we read here. Hannah said, Lord, open my womb to the birth of a son. God said, I'm going to open the world to the birth of a savior. And he used the same prayer to do it. In a moment, I asked Kathy if she'd come up and close us out with prayer. But I want us to remember as we leave this place and as hopefully this sermon series and the sync up with our co-ed community groups and whatever books you may be reading on, hopefully a little bit more of an emphasis on prayer here, we're willing to carry into our prayer life this week this knowledge that God invites, not just bold prayers, tug on his sleeve, bother him like a kid can go to their father and know that they're loved. Not just bold, audacious prayers, but desperate prayers. Because God tells us, hey, I will not only hear your prayer, I will work earth and eternity for salvation that is so much bigger than your prayer. 
We pray for earthly things. He works out eternal things. So church, pray desperately. In moments of need, in moments of hopelessness, in the things that you're willing to finally admit, I can't fix this. Grab control by giving control to the one who's already in control. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.